Father, we are about to open your ancient text. It's ancient, but it never loses relevance. It's relevant in all times and in all places because you spoke it. You've given us in today's text instructions for our local church. It's not our desire to be a hot church or a hip church or even a high church. We desire to be a healthy church. So through this text, give health to your people. Give health to your church. Work us out in this text and may we see lasting fruit from it. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Today we begin our slow crawl through the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll unpack three verses to get our journey started. Let's read three verses and then answer three questions. Verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 2, would you underline the word Corinth? And then circle the phrase Church of God. Here's how we're going to go at this text. We're, we're going to answer three questions. The first one is this. What were Corinth and the Church of God in Corinth like? What were Corinth and the church of God in Corinth like. Then, who was Paul, and why did he write to the church in Corinth? Finally, why should we, as a church, spend 30 weeks studying a letter written to another church 1,900 years ago and 6,000 miles away? What were Corinth and the church of God in Corinth like? Who was Paul and why did he write to the church in Corinth? Why should we, as a church, spend 30 weeks studying a letter written to another church 1,900 years ago and 6,000 miles away? Now, if you wanted to simplify it, you could reduce each question to a single word. The first question, historical. We are going to look at the history of the city and the history of the church in the city. The first question, historical. The second question, biblical. This is where we will go verse by verse, word by word through the text. This is more than a standard greeting. This is gospel gold. First question, historical. Second question, biblical. Third question, practical. Why is this worth our time? How will we be helped individually by going through this book? And how will our church be helped corporately? I'll drip some of that throughout the sermon, but I'll save most of it for the end. Let's take the questions one at a time. 
What were Corinth and the church of God in Corinth like? If we're going to fully grasp all that God has for us in this series, we need to get a flavor of the city and a flavor of the church in the city. There are distinct features in both that will assist us in understanding the letter. The flavor of the city. Corinth was a happening city. There was constant buzz, excitement. People wanted to move to this city. Lots of young families. It was one of the most up-and-coming cities in the Roman Empire. A fun city, a thriving city, a cool city. Lots of coffee shops. Uh, Apple announced they were building there. Even, even Bucky's planned to open a store. The population, 400,000 to 500,000 people. Entrepreneurs found a home in Corinth. The ambitious flocked to it. It was a city full of dreamers. People looking for a fresh start. Corinth was a center for sports. It was the Los Angeles of the ancient world. Los Angeles Rams, Los Angeles Chargers, Los Angeles Dodgers, Los Angeles Angels, Los Angeles Lakers, Los Angeles Clippers, NHL, Los Angeles Kings, Anaheim Ducks, LA Galaxy, Los Angeles Football Club. Like modern Los Angeles, sports teams and stadiums dotted the landscape in ancient Corinth. Every two years, the Isthmian Games were held in Corinth. Isthmian Games, think Olympics. That event attracted spectators from all over the empire. It, it was an eclectic city. When my wife and I vacationed in Austin, Texas, everywhere we saw this phrase, keep Austin weird. Uh, Corinth was a, a cool sports town, but also had a weird urban vibe. I could see Keep Corinth Weird shirts selling well in that city. There were chariot races, trumpet competitions, flute competitions, poetry readings. It was a cosmopolitan city filled with people from different cultures and interests and backgrounds. It wasn't always a city that was alive. It used to be a dead city. They were the recipients of a recent boom. The city lay in ruins 100 years until Julius Caesar, remember from history class, ordered it to be rebuilt. The city now promises grace and peace. The city took on a look of the Romans, a Roman look. Beautiful pillars lined the main streets and on top of each pillar was a head, a bust of a noble person or a Roman god. Baths, gardens, libraries, halls of rhetoric, schools of philosophy. The city was famous for luxury and sophistication. Corinth inherited a large income from tourism, business, and manufacturing. It, it was an economic powerhouse. It was flooded with wealth because it, it was a crossroads. It became a commercial center. The Hong Kong of the Mediterranean. What made Corinth a commercial city? A commercial center? Well, you know what they say on those house hunting shows? What's the most important thing? Location, location, location. Uh, let's throw up a map of, of Corinth. 
the city is located about 50 miles from Athens in Greece. There's a narrow strip of land that connects the northern part of Greece to the southern part of Greece. The narrow strip of land is called an isthmus. It separates the, the Ionian Sea and the Aegean Sea. This strip of land would become a land bridge. The southern part of Greece was basically an island. Let's throw up a, a zoomed out picture of, of Corinth. To explain Corinth, I have to give you a little history of navigation at sea. Some nautical talk. Merchants shipping their goods around the world sent them on ships. Trade ships. And these trade ships wanted to avoid the perilous navigation around the southern tip of the peninsula for two reasons. One, it was 250 miles longer. Two, terrible storms would kick up out of nowhere. Sailors wanted to avoid going around a certain cape, uh, Cape Malia. The Greeks used to say anyone who sails around Cape Malia might as well write his will before he leaves. It was sort of like sailing around Cape Horn. It had Bermuda Triangle vibes. Most captains wanted to avoid the Cape, and so they decided to take the shortcut to travel over the Isthmus and therefore through Corinth. And there were two ways to get the cargo from the ship to the other, other side. Uh, first, you could stop, unload it, and carry it three and a half miles across so that the ships would just run half circuits going, going uh, both ways. Second, if it were smaller ships, they would pull it across with some kind of apparatus or skid. Larger ships were, were placed on logs and rolled over three and a half miles to the other side and dumped back into the water to continue the journey. Just before the 1900s, they dug a canal through the isthmus. You can tube through it now. Why is this important? Because of the location, 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 Corinth became an international city of trade and industry. Anything traveling from Asia to Rome went through Corinth. All the major shipping routes flowed through it. Corinth was a crossroads, an intersection of east and west trade. The city was marked by trade and tourism. You can picture little tourist vending booths selling their wares, street hawkers. The two harbors made the city a commercial center. Now, why did I unpack that? Why did I spend time talking about that? What's so important about that historical data? Why not jump straight to the biblical and the practical and skip the historical? Well, because God is a God of history. History is his story. God controls Cape Malias to funnel people to Corinth, to funnel them to be under the sound of the gospel. God brings ships of non-believers and ambitious people to encounter the resurrected Christ in the gospel. God is bringing the nations to this city. From Asia to Rome, they are on the doorstep of this little gospel-preaching church. Let's review. Corinth 
was the Hong Kong of the ancient world, a commercial city. Corinth was the Los Angeles of the ancient world, a sports city. Let's add to it, Corinth was the lost Vegas of the ancient world, a sinful city. A casual observer may say Corinth needs religion, but they had religion, lots of them. Corinth was a religious melting pot. There were more temples in Corinth than McDonald's in the South, or Tim Hortons in Canada, or cigarettes in Hopkinsville. There was one, one particular temple high above the city. All the ships sailing could see it. It was the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. Over 1,000 temple prostitutes descended on the city every night to practice their trade. The streets were filled with traveling sailors looking to blow time and money. Sophisticated, clean, exciting city during the day sleazy gambling halls, drunken parties during the night. The Greek word for Corinthian had become a nickname for immorality. If you said Joe over there is a Corinthian kind of guy, you meant he sleeps around a lot. Calling someone a Corinthian would be like saying, hey, you, you remind me of Cardi B. Not a good thing. Hey, you remind me of Miley Cyrus. Not a good thing. Plato, not the modeling compound kids play with, but the philosopher. Plato used the phrase Corinthian girl to refer to a prostitute. Now, such a strong culture spelled trouble for such a young church. You've got a flavor of the city. Now let's get a flavor of the church in the city. The church in Corinth was the church gone wild. If you're getting drunk at the Lord's table, you've got problems. They, they were popping Chardonnay. In case you're wondering, we're popping Welch's grape juice here at FFC. The city was creeping into the church. It was hard to tell whether the city stopped and the church began. They were kind of morphing together. The church members were secular in their behavior. They were Corinthian in their pursuits. The sins of the culture eventually become the sins of the church. John MacArthur said they couldn't get de-Corinthianized. The Corinthian church began to look like the Corinthian city. One writer said the problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. They loved the sports and the fashion and the prestige of living in a bustling city. They were having an affair with the culture, cheating on Jesus with the city. They remained enamored with the city's bright lights, obsessed with prestige and status. They highly valued the pagan culture around them, like Christians today who pant after the Grammys or country music singers or YouTube stars or professional athletes. They, they just want to be with the culture. 
This is the most flawed church in the New Testament. And it's frighteningly similar to churches in our day. When you are reading someone else's mail, it's helpful to know who they are. Andrew Wilson says the church was between 50 to 200 people in size. He arrives at that conclusion by piecing together clues and names Paul mentions throughout the letter. I tend to think the church was much larger than that. But either way, the city far outnumbered the church. This was not an easy place to be a Christian. But God never promised it would be. The church at Corinth was diverse and socially stratified. It consisted of a fair cross-section of the population. There were Jews and Gentiles, formerly religious and formerly non-religious, educated and non-educated, free and slave, merchants, sailors, dock workers, former pickpockets, government officials, businessmen, stay-at-home wives, little children. The church consisted of many different ethnicities, some from many tribes and tongues and people groups. This was a church that should have looked like heaven, but too often looked like the world. Now that was what, was, what were Corinth and the church of God in Corinth like. Now, who was Paul and why did he write to the church in Corinth? Who was Paul and why did he write to the church in Corinth? First question, historical. Second question, Biblical. Verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. In modern letters, we, we end with the sender, signed Kyle. Ancient letters always began with the sender. Letters were read out loud, so as the church is listening in corporate worship, as one of the pastors reads the letters, they need to know from the jump who wrote it. Paul. In an oral culture, the writer is immediately identified. They are hearing the name Paul and thinking, he's the man who preached the gospel when I first believed. He, he's the church planter. They have fond memories of Paul. Who was Paul? Paul used to persecute Christians, hate them, despise them, until he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul used to oversee the killing of Christians. Now he is a Christian, willing to be killed for Christ. This is the power of the gospel. Power not only to save Paul, but to motivate Paul. Tom Schreiner, a New Testament scholar, lives in Louisville, says that Paul walked approximately 2,000 miles from A.D. 49 to 52. He traveled continents to spread the good news of Christ. His sandals had to be worn out. Get that man some new shoes. His method, preach the word, plant a church. Preach the word, plant a church. Paul didn't throw out candy to start a church. 
You, you, know, you know parades, they come by on a float and they throw out candy and it attracts children. I feel like that's what church planners do today. They throw out little treats and build a church. But Paul didn't say, let's, let's, get, a great, let, let's get, a, get a great band and build a church. Nor did Paul say, let's start a lot of programs for kids and build a church. It's interesting to me that, that what most people look for in a church today was completely absent in first century churches. Let's not pander to the culture. Well, let, let's, get, let's get some athletes in Corinth who say nice things about Christianity and let's hang on to them. Let's brag about them because they give us clout among the culture. The only thing Paul threw out was the word, like spreading seed. The word did the work. The word created the church in Corinth. Preach the word, plant a church. And by the way, Paul was not a very impressive person. Uh, he, he wasn't very impressive in stature. He wasn't much to look at. It's not like he walked into Corinth with an explosive personality and people were just drawn to his charisma. There's an ancient, not inspired, but reliable description of Paul that says, and I quote, he was a man small of stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, with eyebrows meeting and a nose somewhat hooked, end quote. He must have looked very un unimpressive walking into a culture that valued external beauty. Paul spent 18 months in Corinth. 18 months spreading seed, preaching the gospel, opening the word, teaching on the depravity of man, how man is sinful, how man is at enmity with God, how man must repent and believe on Christ in order to be saved, how Jesus is the Messiah and Lord, and you must submit to his lordship. Paul did not wear a keep Corinth weird shirt. He wore a keep Corinth repenting shirt. Why would Paul spend a year and a half attempting to plant a church in this city? Paul chose to plant churches in certain cities. His choices were purposeful. If trade could radiate from Corinth in all directions, so could the gospel. Paul was strategic. He must have seen Corinth's strategic importance. Paul doesn't hate the big city. He wants to reach the big city. He knows they are poised to, to make a profound impact for Christ. Paul wasn't afraid to, to plant in urban areas. In fact, it seems he targeted them. He intentionally planted in a commercial city, in a sports city, in a sinful city. Paul wasn't starting a church on Sesame Street. He has arrived in one of the most ungodly cities on planet earth. We will see here what gospel ministry looks like in an immoral culture. We have here one of the most unimaginable things possible. A church in Corinth. That's like a shark in a pond or, or a polar bear in Florida. 
How is that even possible? If God can chisel out a church in Corinth, he can chisel out a church in Oak Grove. Of all the places on the planet, God said, I'm going to get some people out of there. And when God says, I'm going to get some people out of there, he always delivers. Verse 1, Paul called by the will of God. The word call is, is repeated two other times in these three verses. Paul's calling lies deep within the plans and purposes of God. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. The word apostle is speaking of an emissary, a spokesman with inspired authority. Paul did not achieve his apostleship. His apostleship has divine origin, the will of God. But Paul is not an imitator apostle, a faux apostle, or an imposter apostle. He was called by God. He didn't take this office by hand. It was a divine act. Don't think of this opening in the letter as nothing more than a mere formality. Paul is saying, I'm not just Paul the church planner. I'm Paul the apostle. The church at Corinth, sitting in their seats like you are, heard the name Paul and they thought about a short fella with a unibrow and bow legs and a hooked nose. But the man writing is not just Paul, their friend and acquaintance. The man writing is Paul the Apostle. Paul throws out his credentials early. He writes under the authority of Jesus. And this is critical to lay it out in the open because Paul is going to correct them and that correction has divine authority behind it. I am not here to offer personal opinions. These words have weight behind them. I have authority to call balls and strikes. Now let me pause here and mention that I've heard some pastors use this verse to speak of their authority in the church. There is authority pastors hold in a church. But it's not the same authority Paul is claiming. He was an apostle and there are no more apostles today. Apostle is a fixed term that represents an authoritative group. It is my conviction there are no more apostles. Unless you say apostle means sent one in a general sense. But in a specific sense, there are no more apostles. Don't see Paul's words as just, just any old intro. It's a declaration of authority. All of this is being delivered with divine authority. Verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, Sosthenes. Paul isn't a maverick apostle, but part of a ministry team. Most scholars think Sosthenes is Paul's secretary, his man-critary. Sosthenes is filling the role Timothy fills in other letters. Paul calls Sosthenes his brother. Not an apostle, but a brother. The most valued title you could ever hold is brother or sister. 
This is not his blood brother, his genetic brother, but his spiritual brother. Sosthenes was Paul's traveling companion. Not, not a co-writer, because Paul uses first person all throughout the letter. Verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Let, let's focus on that little phrase. The church of God. This is not referring to a denomination of churches. There is a church of God denomination. That's not what it's implying here. Notice the possessive, the church of God. This is not Paul's church. This is not the elders' church. This church belongs to God. And so does FFC. This is not Kyle's preaching dome. I don't set the direction for this church. God already did that in his word. I don't even have to ask the question, what should we do on Sundays? How, how are we to view membership? What are we to do in corporate worship? God has already laid that out in his word. The pragmatic attempts of churches to bring growth is an attempt to make his church ours. What entertainments or specialties can we, can we bring to draw people? That is the fastest way to make this about us. Treating the church as if it's ours. Oh, 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 you, you got ideas about how to make the church fit better into the culture? How to make the church more appealing to the culture? Well, yeah, if, if we did this, we would be more palatable to the sophisticated Corinthian mind. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. Jesus is not a brand. We don't market him. I am, I am sick to death of churches helping people achieve their dreams. Become the God, but become the, the you God wanted you to be. This doesn't belong to you. No more. No more trying to sell Jesus to people who just want to worship themselves. There is coming a day when Corinth will no longer want to drink your coffee. You're not going to seduce them with a cappuccino. The city belonging to Rome, it's Roman Corinth. The church belonging to God, it's God's church. Now, I found pastors in other countries preach 1 Corinthians better than we do in the United States. I read after some Canadian pastors and British pastors, and they preach the book better. They are already used to a culture that laughs at them, that mocks them. We are not trying to make Corinth love us or respect us. We are trying to make Corinth bow before a holy God. I want you to notice two prepositions. In. Verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. There's a geographic location and a spiritual location. See that? Two places at once. The church has two addresses. 
an earthly address and a heavenly address. And whether you're in Corinth or Cleveland or Clarksville, you are ultimately in Christ. Verse 2, to the church that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Paul is reminding them of their identity. You are sanctified saints. You're not of Corinth. You are of Christ. Now, saints, what is that? This is not a football team in New Orleans, nor gray-headed people in a church. Saints are are not a high-ranking group of elite Christians. Saints are not what the Catholic Church says they are. Some honorific title for super-Christians. Some some ultra-pious group. The Bible uses that word that way zero times. A saint is simply a Christian. In a church gathering, Christians and non-Christians need to be clearly differentiated. That's why I will often speak directly to you non-Christians. I'm differentiating. The Bible commands us to do that. A Christian is a saint. Is that what you think of when you think of the church of Corinth? (laughs) Interestingly, Paul doesn't call them sinners. No. Christians are saints who sin. You are no longer identified by your sin, but by your salvation. For those of you that are Christians, what made you a Christian? What made you a Christian? Well, it's twofold. Something you did and something God did. They're they're both in the verse. Something you did called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Something you did. Something God did. Called you to be a saint. A saint by calling. Notice the text. Called to be saints. Two callings. Did you call on the Lord? Yes. Did he call you before you called on him? Yes. He gave you the desire to call. His call was first and your call was second. It's a decisive call God gives and a decisive response we give. Called, notice verse 2, called to be saints together. Not called to be saints individually. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul wants the church at Corinth to know that what they have is what all believers everywhere have. Church at Corinth, you're not unlike these other churches. You're just like these other churches. I gathered them and I gathered you. God is the one who gathered you. Well, I thought Paul did it. No, God gathers a local church. 
This gathering is different from all other gatherings in the city because they are sanctified by Christ Jesus. Sanctified. Past tense. It means set apart. It means holy. They used to be in the world. Now they are in Christ. In the city, but set apart from the city. Now this is true of their standing, but it wasn't always true in their stepping. You are a different assembly, a different gathering. Let your stepping be consistent with your standing. There's positional sanctification and practical sanctification. This is positional sanctification. This is not something you are pursuing. It's something we have at the moment of salvation. Sanctified. Something decisive has happened. There was an immediate break. You were not God's, and now you are set apart for God. There are many biblical phrases for this in the scripture. Being born again, being saved, being converted, becoming a new creature, becoming a disciple, following Jesus. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a common greeting from Paul. Twin Christian blessings. Grace and peace. Grace and peace are always in that sequence. Grace is favor and peace is its fruit. Grace Hebrew greeting, peace, Greek greeting. Now, there, there's this, this is a theological hello. Both of these are from God. God is greeting us. He's the only one who can deliver promises of grace and peace. The city couldn't deliver that. Who was Paul and, and why did he write to the church in Corinth? What you will find out later in the book is that someone in the church at Corinth wrote Paul. And they said, hey Paul, everybody is drunk and they aren't wearing many clothes and it's a bit like Jerry Springer over here. In response, Paul writes this letter. It's a verbal kick in the pants. He's going to deal with problems of Christian conduct. Like a doctor, Paul is going to diagnose the problem and prescribe the medicine to take moving forward. It was total chaos in Corinth. They were a fellowship of confusion. And Paul is quite terse and to the point. In some cases, the Corinthians had wrong doctrine. They welcomed false teachers and adopted the world's thinking. They loved traveling philosophers who, who came to pontificate. But you can't love the sheep and at the same time pet the wolves. It's not loving to beat around the bush with wrong doctrine. Paul will address the wrong doctrine and he will also address the wrong behavior. Hey, 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 this is, this is where you are out of step with the gospel. This is where you need to repent of that behavior. 
In this area of your life, you're not submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord. Three times, Jesus as Lord in three verses. He's not your assistant. He's your Lord. You submit to his lordship. You have a higher authority than Rome. Paul. This is, this is where, church, you're being politically correct and not biblically correct. If someone wrote 1 Corinthians today, it would be labeled hate speech by the culture around us. So bring on the emails. I intend to preach every single word. A lot of, don't do that, and a lot of, you better believe this. What were Corinth and the church of God in Corinth like? Who was Paul and why did he write to the church in Corinth? Why should we, as a church, spend 30 weeks studying a letter written to another church 1,900 years ago and 6,000 miles away? The first question, historical. The second question, biblical. The third question, Practical. Some sections of the Bible demand more of their readers than others. The reader has to do a lot of work to build a bridge from the ancient world to the modern world. But not here. Paul isn't dealing with problems only unique to Corinth. These church problems have occurred in every time and in every place. 1900 years later, the church is still battling the same problems. I guess you could say some things never change. By the time Paul went to Corinth, no building was over 100 years old. It was an infant city, but Paul faced ageless challenges. Why are you surprised that the church back then it's just like the church today. Corinthianism didn't die with that church. It's alive and well in our churches. Let me give you five ways our church will be helped by reading a letter to this church. First way, the church at Corinth needed to know how to live out the gospel in every area of life, and so do we. The church at Corinth needed to know how to live out the gospel in every area of life, and so do we. FFC, in some ways, is very similar to the church at Corinth. They are a church plant, and we are a church plant. They are diverse in age, and we are diverse in age. They had people from many different locales, and we have people from many different locales. Paul covers an assortment of topics in no particular order. Paul wrote the book of Galatians to deal with one issue. That is not the case here. He deals with many issues. I'm amazed at the sheer variety of subjects covered in this letter. These are all areas we need to be instructed in. For instance, God gives principles to follow in marriage and singleness. These are not suggestions. These are commands. He's going to hit on sex outside of marriage, divorce, and hedonistic behavior that is gospel opposing. He's going to deal with the marriage bed between a husband and a wife. 
Apparently, there were all sorts of debates on what was okay outside of marriage and varying views on sexuality. Paul will make it really simple. Here is what God said. We need that. We also need his instruction on not becoming a stumbling block to the weak. Paul's going to speak on what to eat. Dietary stuff. That, of course, is all about Christian liberty. People in this church were taking it to unhelpful extremes. I wonder if that could be going on in our church. People taking their Christian liberty to unhealthy extremes. We also find instruction on what Christian worship services should look like. You ever wonder what they looked like in the first century? Well, we're going to find out. In this church, they lacked orderedness in worship. And God wanted it ordered. He didn't want it chaotic as they were currently doing it. He'll also touch on proper roles in worship for men and women. I hope this will help us to have a richer understanding of corporate worship. What's appropriate and what is not. This book covers a lot of things that are very important to the life and health of our church. And just a lot of fun hard texts like head coverings and baptized for the dead. I look forward to explaining all of that to you. They were taking the Lord's table irreverently. I hope this leads to a greater depth and understanding of the Lord's table for you. This book will help you on how to keep evangelizing when you sound like a fool. My hope is that our study in 1 Corinthians will help you articulate the gospel in a clearer way. That you will become more evangelistic as a result of this series. That you will give the gospel and be spurned and embarrassed and shamed so you can partake in the sufferings of Christ. I hope this series will lead some of you to go plant a church in a sports city or a commercial city Leave us and plant a church in a sin city. You find where a Cape Malia is forcing people to travel and then you plant there. Paul laid down his life to plant this church. Do the same. Spend and be spent for this Christ. We will find in this book very practical living instructions interspersed with very deep theological truths. Rich theological themes on eschatology, love, the reality of the resurrection. Secondly, we need, this, we need to study this letter because the church in Corinth needed to be reminded not to let sin run free among their members and we need to be reminded not to let sin run free among our members. The church in Corinth needed to be reminded not to let sin run free among their members and we need to be reminded not to let sin run free among our members. We don't just declare the gospel to non-Christians. We live it before them. This church flat out refused to practice church discipline. They would not guard the sanctity of regenerate church membership. 
God desires his church to be pure. There were sexual acts going on outside of marriage between people in the church. And God commanded it to be addressed. No church of God can ignore that. May this help us not to rush the growth of our church by opening the doors wide in membership, but always requiring credible professions of faith. Thirdly, we need to study this letter because the church in Corinth was instructed on how to keep unity in the local church and we need to be instructed on how to keep unity in the local church. We need this book because we need to be instructed on how to keep unity in the local church. Corinth was a fraction, a faction-ridden congregation. Just, just little groups everywhere. Some were elitist splinter groups. Others were just angry splinter groups. A party spirit reigned in the church. Church fat factions everywhere. They needed to be rebuked for dividing over minor theological issues. How do you, how do you handle disagreements in the church? Would you like to be trained on how to address it? On how to keep it from happening? We will walk through it. By the way, these were not JV disagreements either. Like Jordan over LeBron or Chick-fil-A over Popeyes. These were major disagreements. There were lawsuits within the church. FFC, we all come from pretty wildly different backgrounds. There are and will be opportunities for us to fracture. We need to protect the unity of this church. You, you may be doing something and aren't even aware it is hurting the unity of this church. You're oblivious to it. You think talking like that doesn't fracture the unity, but it does. You think your facial expression doesn't cause a tear, but it does. Offhand comments, fracture. May this letter help you be more guarded to fight for the unity of this church and to see areas where you are not contributing to the unity of this church. Fourthly, we need to study this letter because they had to preach a gospel in a sexually immoral culture and we have to preach a gospel in a sexually immoral culture. They had to preach the gospel in a sexually immoral culture and we have to preach the gospel in a sexually immoral culture. How do you stay true to the word of God in a rapidly shifting culture? This verse-by-verse -verse exposition through the book of 1 Corinthians will help us. It's like the Deuteronomy of the New Testament. It has the goal of securing purity and holiness of God's people. Be ye holy, for I am holy. It gives a wide-ranging treatment of moral issues and sexual promiscuity. It will encourage you to pursue doctrinal purity and a godly lifestyle. I am convinced, and more convinced now than ever, I am convinced this series will help us fight sin. 
help the devil's fire to fall upon wet tinder so it does not ignite. This book will wet our tinder. In our sex-crazed culture filled with pornography and the degradation of marriage, we will learn to work out the gospel in our pagan surroundings. What do we need to be preaching to a culture that's sexually immoral? Well, we take our cue from Paul. He decided to know nothing among them except Jesus and him crucified. Everyone who knocks on the door of the brothel is looking for Jesus at some level. Our job is to let all the sailors on the streets of Corinth know what you're looking for is really found in Christ. This is a book. This is a book that will contribute to the holiness of this church. But this is also a book which could contribute to creating a bunch of Pharisees in this church. Week after week, I will give you a constant call to moral purity. But don't you ever forget, ultimately, all the Corinthians will make it to God, not because of their holiness, but because of Jesus's. All the Corinthians will make it to God, not because of their holiness, but because of Jesus's. His grace propels us to live a holy life, but to never depend on that holy life for salvation. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to his cross we cling. Father, we, like the church at Corinth, will face attacks from without and from within. Father, protect the unity of this church, protect the health of this church. Protect the doctrine of this church. Use this 1 Corinthians series to do all of this and abundantly more than we could ever think or imagine. And do it for your glory alone. Amen.